What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Yours in Murder contains descriptions of violence. Adult themes, foul language, and input from cats. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Yours in Murder. I'm your host, Rachel. With me is Rebecca. Present. Bueller. Bueller. I'm trying to figure out why it's suddenly not cold in the room I record in. Apparently there's a minor heat wave. I I don't know. I'm just happy that it's no longer the Arctic in here. But you complain when it's hot. I am just trying to find a temperature for my house that's somewhere between tropical jungle and tundra, and I have not found that setting on my air conditioner yet. You should probably just get a Snuggie. You know, they were on sale at Aldi. I actually have a Snuggie on the futon behind me, but that is Snoopy's Snuggie now. He has claimed it, and I am no longer allowed to use it. You know what? Aldi should really pay me money. For all the promoting I do, um, anyone's interested... This week, starting on Wednesday, is German week at Aldi, so they have a lot of strudels and pretzels that are going to be on sale. Except for by the time we publish this episode, it will no longer be German week at Aldi. I'm sorry, everybody. I just got your hopes up. But they do have sauerkraut year-round, and it's pretty good. I don't like sauerkraut. Well, that's your problem, isn't it? I do like strudels, though. I'm very, very fond of strudels. I got two days off at the end of this week. I'm going to go get me some strudel. So... Here's the deal. Actually, our episode has nothing to do with Germany. Actually, it does. <laughs> a little bit. Okay, but not to start with. It does have to do with a place called Ice Valley, so my complaint's about the fact that it's constantly cold in here. You think my transitions are bad, but actually, a lot of this episode will have some Norwegian names, place names. Neither of us speak Norwegian, like, at all. Oh, this episode is actually sponsored by Google Translate because Rachel was using it. Yeah, um, and it's one of those things, sometimes things don't translate well from language to language. Actually, one of the articles Rachel sent me 
I translated it into French so that I could translate the French to the English and make sure the words were going right. If anything is worded a little strangely, it probably is a translation issue because, again, this is a, a case, it's a very popular case, so citizen sleuths have made a brilliant Wikipedia about it. But even some of the wording on the Wikipedia, you can tell it's been translated from Norwegian, so some things are, are worded a little strangely. We did, uh, recently the BBC has picked it up, though, so we, we did find some, some fun stuff on the BBC. Oh, thank goodness. We speak their language. However, did you know actually the original British accent sounded more like American accents, and it wasn't until after the Americas were like, fuck you, no tea, that what we now know as the Queen's English came to be as it is. I did, actually, because I have friends who we've talked about before in our X-Men of New Orleans. My friend, the linguistics expert, uh, helped us out for that one. So uh, she and I have discussed this before because that's the kind of thing that she finds interesting. Funsies. So we are not talking about New Orleans either. We're going to go over to Europe, y'all. The year is 1970. The pants are wide. Disco balls are glittery, and Rachel wrote none of this. I don't think that the pants widened, like, as soon as it hit 1970. I think it took a little while to get in that swing. The clock hit midnight, and everyone's uh, pants magically turned into bell-bottoms. But not really. (laughs) But the Cold War is in full swing. For those of you who did not have very Euro- and American-centric education like we did, that's when the U.S. and Russia had a really big pissing contest for decades. I think we described it as a pissing contest in our last three episodes, yeah, but too. So the Cold War, nuclear weapons are totally a thing, and everyone's afraid that other countries will shoot them at them if they don't shoot them first. You duck and cover. Troop withdrawals have begun in Vietnam as America's realized that there's absolutely no chance that they can win that war. So they just decided to give up and declare that there's no winner. That's the American way of saying we lost. It is. I mean, if you talk to people, they're still not like, no, we lost the Vietnam War. They're like, first of all, it was a military action. Which you note, it's only a military action when talking about the result. Anyway, we're not disparaging any Vietnam vets because they were they're brave, brave men. But yeah, it was not a war that was a good idea. No, we're disparaging um, the generals. Yes, and the uh, the leadership. However, um, there is a really interesting couple of episodes of Professor Buzzkill about the myths of the Vietnam War that I highly recommend. And no, Professor Buzzkill does not actually sponsor me for all the times I plug him. He just listens to my crazier ideas. So, the Cold War, like I said, full swing. Troops are coming out of Vietnam, and the world is divided into the Eastern Blocs, who back the Soviets, and the Western Bloc, which backs the U.S., So fun fact, you've heard, Rebecca, right, that uh, things are divided into first, second, and third world countries? Yeah, it's a really not excellent way to describe things. And so people are like, we shouldn't use that. We should call them um, developed and developing. I'm like, how about we just admit that we have different cultures? I get the developed, developing, and undeveloped ideas because it kind of reflects parts of it, but... Still, different cultures, different ideas. It still ends up being that there's not really a good way to categorize it without being shitty. Well, that's because we always base it on what our culture perceives as what's important. But I, there are some, like, 
I've read papers where they're like, maybe we should just be like, hey, this economy is doing this. I'm like, wow, you mean like not put things in broad categories? That's brilliant. I can get it for generalizations because as some, like, I learned about this in political science and international relations classes, and it can be helpful to think of things in categories. But really, once categories are only good for generalization, and then you do have to go down to a micro level instead of this macro level. But, so fun fact, our system of dividing into first world, second world, and third world countries is often thought to be a comment on our development. But the real only difference in the first and second world right now is whether they were Western or Eastern Bloc. Like, if you were allied with the U.S., no matter what kind of development you had, you were automatically first world. Versus if you were allied with the Russians, even if now you've developed up and surpassing the U.S., your second world. Do you mean, like, maybe if you got the satellite into space first? I know, right? Like, the people who got the satellite into space first are second world? So this, again, is why the system is falling out of favor and being replaced with better language. But it does help you understand where the world was in 1970 when our case opens. I don't want to say takes place because it's kind of back Yeah, this is, again, I keep referencing this. When we started our Manson Family series, we went to the world up through 1969. So this, the the world was sort of in turmoil in 68 and 69, but mainly U.S.-centric. So this is when... All of those ramifications of the U.S. political system are worldwide. So it's a little unstable. Well, you could say the shit hit the proverbial fan. It did, in fact, hit the proverbial fan. I'm not even sure if it was proverbial at that point. I think there might have been literal shit. Our story takes place in Norway, specifically Bergen. And Norway is, of course, a Scandinavian country, so it is in Northern Europe. And it's about the same latitude as Oslo, Norway's capital, But it has a much milder climate due to the Gulf Stream bringing up warm water by the shore and lots of the surrounding territory is islands. So it's rare, but this is is interesting. It has no bearing on the case, but it was very interesting. It is rare that it's this big of a difference, but Bergen can be about 20 degrees Celsius warmer than Oslo because of that Gulf Stream. It's rare that it's that much difference, but that's one of the bigger recorded differences. Cool. Bergen is also known as the City of Seven Mountains, and the mountains protect the city somewhat from some of the harsher weather. Bergen is right on the sea, or on a bay of the sea. A lot of the surrounding territory is little islands. And one other thing I found interesting about Norway is that there's a lot of very local dialects of Norwegian, which we can think of English in America as having some dialects, but they're not quite as specific as they apparently are in Norway, which is really interesting. I don't know. Sometimes you come to the Midwest, and if you're outside of, like, an urban area, you know, if you're not in Milwaukee or Chicago, sometimes I think people from, like, Massachusetts are like, what's an oak? (laughs) Does it go with ranch? Yes. Yes, it goes with ranch. I was watching YouTube videos, and it's uh, a Midwestern guy is telling his kids, like, oh, tornado sirens, go to the basement. And then he goes outside with all the other dads and he's sitting there drinking beer. And I'm like, I feel this on a spiritual level. It is my culture. Yeah. But I guess the language is not. <laughs> there is some. Like, I had a friend who lived in the Chicago suburbs who thought that some of the stuff that I said, being from north central Illinois, was funny. And that's only, like, an hour and a half, two hour difference in driving time. Also, hi, welcome to the Midwest. We measure distance in drive time. 
But then, like, people down here where I live now, which is about, what's Springfield back? About two hours south of where we grew up? Somewhere in there? Yes. It, no, it depends on how many state troopers are out. Yeah, true. It's two hours, by the way, I drive, which is probably, like, a little more, by the way, most people drive. But people can tell that I'm not from around here because I speak a little differently. I have a little more of a northern dialect than people down here do, but it's not as pronounced. Like, they have a name for the dialect of Norwegian that they speak, which is very interesting. It has no bearing on the story, but Norway is very interesting. I got very excited. Well, a lot of it, too, is those languages. Um, I'm speaking from my knowledge of French, but the U.S. is really, really young as a country, English. Are we just like our country, young, scrappy, and hungry? Yeah, well, English was like, yeah, sure, it's still developing. But as a language, it was kind of, it was mature by the time it got here. Versus like French, uh, the Southern French, and the, like, or Paris French, and down by the Mediterranean. They do have some different dialects that are a lot different. People didn't travel as easily. I guess I never learned much about Norway. Because in world history, Norway kind of has stayed out of their, like, stayed to their own shit. Yeah, honestly, the only thing I know about Norway is what its flag looks like. I mean, the Vikings. We got the Vikings. And they were invaded during World War II. But other than that, we don't talk about it a lot. I just found it very interesting to learn a little more about Norway. And one of my favorite movies is set in Norway. Oh, my God. So carrying on, because you just need to let it go. Um, (laughs) That's funny. Our story begins in one of these mountains outside of Belgen. It is called, I apologize in advance, Ulriken. And it's the tallest of the seven mountains and has a slope called the Estelin or Ice Valley. This valley is also known as Death Valley due to a number of suicides that occurred there in the Middle Ages, as well as a hiking accident that caused multiple deaths there in the 1960s. It sounds like people were hiking in a fog and fell to their deaths, so it sounds like, you know, you missed a spot on the trail and tumbled to your death. On a November day in 1970, a man and his two young daughters were hiking in the area's foothills that was only a short drive from the city of Bergen. The family discovered a body between large rocks, and they quickly ran to report it to the authorities. Like you do. It sounds like this was not a terribly traveled hiking part of the trail. It sounds like they were climbing, kind of, they'd done a loop and they were kind of climbing in the mountains. You know how you will when you got little kids with you and they want to go explore something. As long as it's fairly safe, you kind of let them them go see what they want to see. This is now where I put in a PSA. My friends, don't hike off of trails. Nowadays you don't. In the 70s you could do that shit. Well, I'm just saying, um, coming from an area that has hiking trails on a whole lot of sandstone that is unstable, don't go off the trails. They're there for a reason. But either way, this family, it seems like, might have gone off trail, but they found a body, which is another good reason to not go off trail. That's why I don't jog. The authorities arrived on the scene to find a woman in an out-of-the-way area where they commented that it would be unusual to walk. And the first thing that one detective reported noticing was the smell of burnt flesh in the air. We're not going to get real graphic, but this is a little graphic. So the body appeared to be that of a woman laying on her back in what is called a boxer's or pugilistic stance. I hope I said that right. This means that her hands were in fists and her arms were partially extended like you think of a boxer stance defending yourself in a fight. I'm demonstrating in case anybody can see through my computer. 
Well, that's actually something when a body is exposed to extreme heat, a lot of times the muscles contract, so your hands become fists and your arms and legs. Yeah, pull that's in a what bit. that's what they said is that this body is burned, so it could be either that she died in this fire or that she was exposed to fire after she died because those muscles can and please forgive me for this terminology, they cook. That's exactly what they do, yes. Yeah, but I don't really like to think about that very often. It's in the part of my brain of things I don't think about. Your muscles are meat, so obviously they... Well, yeah, that's what you're eating when you're eating a steak. Things I don't like to think about as I enjoy my Slabo Elsie. But yeah, your vessels basically cook, and think about when you cook a piece of meat, right? It shrinks. So that's what happens to your muscles. And when your muscles shorten in your hands, your hands clench, your arms pull in, and it goes like that. So this woman was badly burnt on the front of her body, including her face and hair. However, her back and the backside of her body were not burnt at all or barely touched. Authorities on the scene said that it looked like she had thrown herself back from a fire and been badly burned in the process. Like the idea of maybe, you know, if you've ever put accelerant on a fire and it flares up and you have to step back like she got caught in the flames and threw herself away from them that way however there's really no evidence of a campfire or anything like that near her body that they could find this body was taken in for an autopsy and examination and originally suicide was suspected near the body was found a cheap bottle of liquor two plastic bottles a plastic holder for a passport rubber boots, an umbrella, a sweater, a scarf, stockings, a matchbook, a purse, and a pair of earrings. Burnt paper surrounded the body, and a fur hat was found underneath the body that reeked of gasoline. Petrol, if you're being European. So, much like in the case of Somerton Man, which we covered two weeks ago, any label or identifying feature of these items had been removed, including the labels of the water bottles. And there are going to be many similarities between this case and Summerton Man, which is why we actually chose to put them pretty close to each other. So our habitual listeners have it fresh in their head, and we have it fresh in our head. It's kind of interesting to compare and contrast. So all of these items were found placed around her. And in fact, one investigator thought it looked almost as if a ritual had been conducted there. Probably panic from the investigator. But again, remember, what did people see about this time? They saw in the international news, I'm sure, they saw a crazy man with followers who wrote on bl with blood in the walls, right? Of course, and then carved a swastika in his head in prison. We're talking about Charles Manson, BT Dubs. Um, this was kind of when satanic panic took hold. This is when it started brewing. It wouldn't hit the fervor we think of of satanic panic until the 80s, but this is when it really started brewing. And right in the same year as this case was Jeffrey McDonald, which actually Rebecca is thinking of covering in the next couple weeks. Yeah, so... um. Now we've said it, now she has to do it. Of course. But so when you see things in a circle, I mean... Normally, you don't just put your things like sweaters and boots in a circle around you. So they thought maybe it had some significance. I'm not sure, like, you know, if you're doing a satanic ritual and putting things in a circle to summon people, why rain boots and a sweater would be involved. I don't know. I have some friends that are always cold and I'd put a sweater in the circle to summon them. But anyway, let's talk about science. 
So when an autopsy was conducted, the mystery of this woman only deepened. Originally, the Bergen police had turned down the help of the National Criminal Investigative Service, or CRIPOS, I believe. I, that probably has a Spanish accent on it that I just made this Norwegian word Spanish. However, they quickly decided that they had prematurely turned down that offer of help and kind of crawled back and said, look, we need a little help. Mainly because this case was not as straightforward as it seemed. An autopsy revealed that the woman had died of a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and barbiturate overdose. Soot was found in her lungs, which proved she was alive for at least part of the time that she was on fire. 50 to 70 sleeping pills were found in her stomach, with an additional dozen pills of Feminol brand on her person. It seems like these are sleeping pills of uh, phenobarbital, which is a very powerful barbiturate. Yeah, and you take 50 to 70 of anything, and it's not going to be good. Her neck was bruised, but it was not known if that was from a fall or if someone had hit her. One thing I really noticed in all of this reporting is they never had an estimated time of death, as far as I can tell. I've never seen it. There's lots of things that make time of death difficult, and burning is one of them. Oh, I'm sure. It messes up lots of the environmental factors, and if somebody is recently deceased, the best way to get a time of death is often by body temperature, and if the body has been on fire, that just doesn't work. So, altogether, not much was known about the mysterious woman. So, obviously, sleeping pills, fire, this originally was looking like a suicide. But her face was burned beyond recognition, which made easy identification impossible. She had no ID on her body, as far as they can tell. Anything that could have identified her had been removed, including tags on clothing, the labels from her water bottles. They knew the unidentified was female, about 5 foot 4, 5 foot 5 inches tall. She had a small round face, small brown eyes, and small ears. I don't really know what qualifies as small ears, but they mention her small ears. Her hair was brown to black and long, so somewhere in the darker end of the hair spectrum, and they believe that the woman was between 25 and 40. At this time, they believe she was probably in her early to mid-30s, and she wore her hair in a ponytail tied with a bow at the time of her untimely death. She had never, as far as they could tell, been pregnant or given birth. Suicide still remained a theory, but as strange clues and evidence stacked up, investigators started to release information in the hopes that someone in Norway would have known the strange woman. As a possible link to identification, they removed her jaw and teeth for possible identification because she had distinctive gold dental work that could be used as a clue. Samples of her organs were taken as well and stored for later use. So, we are going to get even more comparisons to Summerton Man here. Three days after the body was discovered, the Bergen Rail Station notified the police that they had unclaimed luggage. They examined it, and a fingerprint on the items inside matched the unidentified woman in the morgue. Rachel started texting me while I was working today, saying, If she has been really badly burnt, how are they getting fingerprints? And I will explain this. Any listeners who are particularly queasy... Give me a couple minutes and then come back, all right? Okay, I'll be back in five minutes. Got it. Rude. So when a body is badly burnt, obviously you oftentimes need fingerprints for identification. But what happens when your friction-rich skin, which is the skin on your hands and feet, 
when that gets exposed to very high temperatures, a lot of times the epidermis, which is the outer layers of the skin where those ridges are, and the dermis, which is the inner layers of the skin, begins to separate. So when a body is unidentified and they're going to try and use fingerprints for identification, a lot of times what happens is the hands are removed and sent to the lab because forensics labs don't generally have room to store an entire body. One thing about burn victims is that when a body is exposed to very high heat, like we said, the muscles contract. And a lot of that is the flexor muscles in the hand bring in the fingers. And so sometimes it actually helps preserve some of the friction ridges from damage. But still, the most common way that analysts try to get friction ridge information from hands that are charred is to refrigerate them for three to five days. And what that does is helps complete the separation of the outer epidermis and the inner dermis. Once that's done, and you know it's done because it kind of looks like the hand is wearing like a wrinkly white glove. But then what happens is once that's done, the analyst is actually able to cut the epidermis off of the inner skin and cut that connective tissue and peel it off. And so once that has happened, it's rinsed with warm water and gently brushed with a very soft toothbrush and some dish soap to get any of the charred, not usable gunk off of it. Then it's patted dry and what they do is take a roller and roll ink onto that skin and then flip it upside down and using their hand they're able to press and get the pressure they need to make a print of the friction ridges hopefully sometimes that doesn't work and sometimes the best that can be done is using different types of lighting try to take photographs of badly charred skin a lot of times if you put the light at how to not a 90 degree angle basically where it's on the same level is what you're trying to photograph, it'll cast shadows. It can work with friction ridges, where the friction ridges will cast a shadow into the furrow. So basically the high point casts a shadow on the low point. And if you do it just right, sometimes you can get a decent enough photograph that you can see some friction ridges there. So basically, sometimes it's a crapshoot when you have a case like this. But there are ways that analysts will try to get as much information as they can. I'm not sure exactly what they did in this case, but they were obviously able to get information from these burnt hands in order to say, yes, this item in this case was touched by this woman. It was kind of interesting because I listened to another podcast on this case while I was in the car earlier. And they mentioned that they thought that the woman had had her fingerprints sanded or burned off, which I didn't find in anything. So I'm wondering if that was an old theory that got put into some old news articles, when mainly the ones I'm using are the sum-ups from recent retrospectives. So burning or sanding your fingerprints off doesn't really work. I know, like, John Dillinger tried to use acid to burn his fingerprints off. What people forget... And people have done all sorts of crazy things, skin grafts and everything to try and get rid of their prints. Your entire hand has friction ridge skin. So all you're doing is making it where, wow, part of that is burnt off. So now it's extremely recognizable. 
As for sanding, Henry Folds in the 1880s in Japan actually did studies into fingerprints. He was one of the fathers of fingerprint identification. And he actually had a lot of his students take pumice stones and rub the friction ridges off of their fingers. But of course, they always grew back in exactly the same way. So there's not really any merit to trying to get rid of your fingerprints in either of those ways. So I'm not sure if this woman had done that, not knowing that it was pointless, or if maybe people were speculating. I'm assuming it was speculation because with a case like this, rumors start to fly. Especially as later you'll see that the police withheld some information due to the sensitive nature of it. But I guess the other thing they could have done, technically, is if they had fingerprints on something near her body, match it to something in her case. But I think they would mention that. Yeah, that's not done. I mean, if it was trying to identify anything, but I think that they were probably able to get her fingerprints because I didn't see a thing about them having them burned off. Even if it's something found near her body, it's not what in fingerprint analysis they'd call ground truth. You don't know for sure that she touched that unless you are witnessing that person touching that thing and you are documenting that it happened with that finger. You don't know for sure that's their print to identify it to something else. So a fingerprint from her body matched a fingerprint on one of the items in this unidentified luggage. So this obviously gave the investigators more evidence. And even years later, one of the surviving investigators, when they interviewed him, remembered the feeling of excitement and how everyone threw their hands up in the air in joy when they heard of this suitcase evidence because they thought this would crack the case. Well, if it did, it probably wouldn't be as interesting and we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Actually, the podcast episode I was listening to, they're like, oh, yeah, they found thread, right? Like they did in Summer Tin Man. And they're like, no, actually, this time they had real evidence. So there were two suitcases from this train station that they believed belonged to this mysterious woman based on fingerprint evidence. There was a lot of money in the lining of the suitcase. Um... And so Deutschmarks were the currency in West Berlin and West Germany. Remember, like we talked about for a long time at the beginning of the episode, the Cold War is going on. West Germany was the side that the U.S. was chummy with. And by chummy with, I mean they basically ran the government. They also split Berlin, even though Berlin was in East Germany. They split Berlin in half still, too. This is when the Berlin Wall was a thing. It was after this, but the Berlin Wall would become a thing. All right, but back to the suitcase. Inside the suitcase, most of the items found were, I mean, typical for a suitcase. There were clothes, shoes, makeup, notepads, maps, 135 Norwegian kroner, which I'm probably not pronouncing right, but money, train timetables, non-prescription glasses, and sunglasses which is where the identifying fingerprint came from. There was also a prescription eczema cream with the label taken off. The bag also contains some more unconventional items, such as wigs and coins from Belgium, Switzerland, and Britain. No identifying info was found anywhere in the suitcase at all, barring that fingerprint, save for two kind of hazy clues. The notepad had one page filled in, in code, 
and there was a shopping bag from a shoe store. So basically, if the layperson were to pick up this case, there would be nothing to help trace it to this woman. It was only because they were able to develop a latent fingerprint that they were able to say, okay, it it's was hers. on the um, lens of either the sunglasses or the non-prescription glasses, which at first I thought non-prescription, it might, you know, mean something like, you know, readers you can pick up at a store. But they actually meant that there was no correction at all in the lenses. They were just glass. So with wigs and things to use as a disguise, with few leads, the police sent an appeal for information to the press, and the public kind of gave information that led to a kind of a hazy picture of the woman's first movements. The police traced the shopping bag to a shoe store in Stavanger, which is a city on the southwestern tip of Norway. I'm pointing for emphasis, even though you can't see me. Oh, when I talk about fingerprints, my hand's up the whole time. It looks like I'm swearing an oath. I've never learned until I started podcasting how much I talk with my hands. So speaking to the employees there, I believe the main employee was actually the owner's son. It was that small kind of shoe store. Um, they remembered the foreign woman when they described her to him. She'd come in about three weeks before to purchase rubber boots. She decided on a popular brand and those same boots were found next to her body. This linked the Isdale woman, what they were calling the unidentified corpse was the Isdale woman, with this foreign woman traveling Norway. Most likely they were the same person. Now note, I originally was wondering how they could tell that because they said this brand of boots was very popular, but there is a certain amount of coincidence that you cannot ignore if they were the same size, the same color, the same brand, and match the description of the customer. I'm going with it's a pretty good chance. I mean, it wouldn't be like positive identification if you had nothing else, but it definitely is like, well, I mean, take a look, y'all. It's pretty obvious. It's a good reason to look further into this area of Norway. The owner's son describes the woman. He was interviewed in an article, so this is a direct quote. A direct quote translated to English, so bear with us. Medium height, long dark hair, dark brown eyes and a round face, slightly plump, almost chubby curves, but with pretty legs. He said she was a customer who took up space, asked a lot of questions, and spent a long time making up her mind. Is she American? I... He said more like she took up space, like people mentioned later that she was very self-assured for a woman traveling alone in Oh, I thought you meant take up space. Like, you know how some customers walk in and they're like, well, excuse me. And you're like, Karen, sit down. Yeah, no. This was a, just someone who was not afraid to ask a lot of questions and get the help she needed. Not somebody like me who's like, please don't talk to me at the store. Okay. Her English was poor and I remember a certain peculiar scent, he tells us. Later, when it became more common in Norway, he'd identify that scent as garlic. All right, theory right now. Yes, ma'am. Vampire hunter. So the police began questioning hotel staff and found a lead near the shoe store at the St. Svithen Hotel. There, with the staff member's help, they matched the Istel woman with Fenella Lork from Brussels, who stayed in the hotel about when the shoe store clerk remembered her. They described her as a dark-haired, golden-skinned woman who spoke with an accent and kept to herself. One staff member remembers her having the boots that the Estelle woman was known to have bought. So that's another link there. 
But there's no more record of a Fenella Lorch anywhere in Norway. No other hotels. So it's possible she was traveling under an assumed name. Hotel Hordehangemen in Bergen reported that the mystery woman stayed there. She checked out six days before her body was found. But she stayed under the name Elizabeth Leenhauerf. So around this time, the police cracked the code in her notepad and found out that it was a record of dates and places she has stayed around Europe. At this time, the police pulled the customs-slash-alien forms from the hotels in Norway, comparing all of the records of foreign women to the handwriting of the Isdale woman. At the time, if you were a foreign person traveling to Norway, you had to fill out a little form with your passport number and your business. I mean, tensions were high in the world at this time, so they liked to know who was coming through the country. Pointing out here, in recent years, and recent, I mean the last decade or so, handwriting analysis has kind of really taken a pretty hard hit. There are some parts of it, such as ink analysis is part of question documents and telling if something was written more recently than others, but matching handwriting to a person is really falling out of favor because it just isn't the scientific backing to it. People's handwriting changes over time, and it it isn't scientifically unique like DNA or fingerprints are. True, but it, it sounds like they were able to piece this together with clerks who remembered these women checking in. So they had handwriting that looked similar. Her date book said when she was traveling through the area, and the handwriting looked similar on the forms. So in addition to the other information, it definitely does bolster it. But it's it's like, um you know, the JonBenet Ramsey case when they're like, well, the handwriting analysis says, yeah, but nobody cares about that. Sit down. The only people that really do question documents anymore are the IRS. They matched because it didn't look like she was trying to disguise her handwriting. So they matched all of these pieces of evidence together to come up with what they believe is a pretty comprehensive record of her travels. So these are the following identities, which we pulled from a news article, so it's pretty accurate. Genevieve Lancier from Leuven, staying in the Viking Hotel, Oslo, from the 21st to the 24th of March, 1970. Then, Claudia Tielt from Brussels, stayed in the Hotel Bristol, Bergen, from the 24th to the 25th of March. Claudia Tielt from Brussels, stayed in Hotel Scandia, Bergen, from the 25th of March to the 1st of April. Claudia Nielsen from Ghent, stayed in the CNA Hotelette. Stavanger from the 29th to the 30th of October. So a bit of a gap there. Alexia Zard Marche from Ljubljana. Ljubljana? Apparently it's the capital of Slovenia. And she stayed in the Neptune Hotel, Bergen, from the 30th of October to the 5th of November. Then, under the name of Vera Jarl from Antwerp, she stayed in the Hotel Bristol, Trondheim, from the 6th to the 8th of November. Fenella Lorch stayed in the St. Stephen Hotel, Stravanger, from the 9th to the 18th of November. Then we have, as a Miss Elizabeth Lienhofer, stayed in the Hotel Rosencrantz, Bergen, from the 18th to the 19th of November. Elizabeth Lienhofer from Austin stayed in the Hotel Hordeheinmann, Bergen, from the 19th to the 23rd of November. So basically, they've managed to trace this woman through handwriting, her date book, and talking to clerks. 
And they believe that she has been staying throughout Norway since March under different names in different places. But there is a really large gap from April to October. So not only did she give different names, but she also gave different places of origin. Going so far as to say, you know, she's from Brussels, she's from Antwerp, or the capital of Slovenia that I still can't pronounce. So on top of all of these, French authorities report that a woman named Vera Schlosslesnack was staying in Paris at the time of the Isdale woman's records of being there with the same description and handwriting. It sounds like in these gaps when she was not in Norway, she was elsewhere in Europe. But I don't believe they've released all of those records. If they have, I did not find them. But she matched the description and the handwriting. Most of these identities were claimed to be Belgian, but when they contacted the authorities in Belgium, none of these passports or identities checked out. They were all fake. Well, obviously some of them were fake, because if it's the same person... What I mean is she didn't steal someone's passport. It was a lot easier to fake documents back then. So, because all of this was happening during the Cold War, of course, people thought she was a spy as soon as she was discovered. However, with this evidence of her using seven or so passports, Norwegian authorities did notify their intelligence agents. So this isn't like Summerton men when they're like, he has no identifying marks. He must be a spy. They're like, we're pretty sure this woman has used seven different passports and identities and has had a suitcase full of disguises. We should look into this. I mean, it doesn't mean that she has to be a spy. She could also be a criminal or somebody like that, but it's a fair bet during the Cold War. This is why they kept a lot of the information secret, because they didn't want to cause an international incident. So the description of her was sent out through many countries and through Interpol, but no clues to her identity were found. Some of the only people who had met the woman were hotel staff, who said she was self-assured, quiet, and beautiful. She spoke Flemish and English, smelled of garlic, wore wigs, and kept to herself. The official cause of death was ruled to be suicide by sleeping pills, but many believe that she had been murdered. One of the most touching things, you know how we like to remember the victims as themselves when we can, but we don't know who this woman was. But a young woman who was about 21, who worked in the hotel at this time, said that this woman would come down and eat in the nice, in the, you know, a decent to nice hotel dining room. At the time, women really didn't go out to restaurants alone very often, and they did not travel alone. But this woman was very confident and self-assured in sitting there quietly eating dinner by herself. And this young woman who worked in the hotel apparently looked at this woman and told a friend that that was the kind of woman she wanted to be when she grew up, being that comfortable being in spaces by herself. This young woman also did say, though, that she wasn't sure what happened to this woman because she didn't seem like the type to put on a pair of, you know, joggers and go up the mountain. Note that they didn't say that she was wearing jogging pants because all of her clothing was burned, but they're like, she didn't seem like the type that was just like about to go on a hike. So with no identity known, the Estelle woman was laid to rest in February of 1971 with the Roman Catholic service. She had often used saints' names as aliases, so this was kind of the police force's best guess to their religion. So I think that's nice that they, you know, at least, I mean, 
Saints' names are pretty common. They might have been wrong, but they at least tried to give her the service that they thought would most align with her own views. Her coffin was zinc to preserve her remains and also made it easy to exhume the remains if needed. One of the things was they thought that, you know, they were pretty sure they were burying her in the soil of a country that was not her own. And they wanted to make it where she would be preserved. So if somebody came forward, they could take her home. That's extremely thoughtful. And also to preserve the remains in case they had a chance to identify her as well. Members of the police force, I believe about 16 of them, attended her service, and they also made sure to take photographs, and one of the policemen, who was known to be a decent writer, was asked to write down his observations of it, so if her family came forward in the future, they could show them, we did the best we could by your relative, we tried to give her a nice burial. There's actually um, a photograph of it with the priest in his full vestments and all members of the police force in their nice, you know, their their long coats and looking very solemn. But it looks like, I mean, for someone who they do not know who she was, it was a beautiful service to try to give her the most dignity they could. Originally, the police tried to deny and keep the spy theory quiet, and they even denied that they called in intelligence agents on the case— but later on, declassified files proved that they were fully investigating the possibility that the Estelle woman was a spy. A fisherman had reported a woman who looked very much like the Estelle woman observing military activity in Norway. Norway also had a few other mysterious deaths near the military base that were thought to be linked to espionage. The multiple passports make people think that a spy agency was involved. I mean, she traveled to enough places with convincing documentation that there was probably money and some intelligence behind it. The woman's travels even seemed to match up to the testing of the Penguin anti-ship missile, as official documents state, but nothing has been officially confirmed. A few brief reports from others about seeing the woman were unconfirmed as they came at a later date. So basically, you know, as time passes, memory is a fickle thing. And sometimes people, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are like, no, I'm pretty sure I saw that person. And they definitely did not. So some people later on said that they believe they saw her, but they came late enough that they're taken with um, not even a pinch of salt, probably a, a fair sprinkling. A salt rim. We salt rimmed that theory. One taxi driver saw this woman or claimed to see this woman meeting someone at a station. And another man said that he saw her hiking. So maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. The man who saw her hiking said that she looked sad and like she was going to tell him something and then didn't. But this would have been a few days before she was found. However, this man claims he went to police at the time and was turned away, so there's no record of it. But there's also, because there's no record of it, there's no way to corroborate that story. So he could have gone to police at the time. He could not have. We don't know. Some new progress has been made in the case in recent years because of science. This is the point where I send Rebecca translated Norwegian articles and tell her to please decipher the science for me. So if you recall, when we spoke about the autopsy, the Estelle woman's teeth and jaw were actually preserved for later testing. They were not buried with her, and there were samples taken from her organs that were also preserved. Originally, the estimate of her age at death was 25 to 40 years old, 
but it was generally thought to be in the early 30 range. In hotels, she signed her age in the guest books as 28, but there has been more testing done on the teeth and jaw since then. New evidence from her teeth show that she was probably born in the 1930s, and it has wiggle room of like four years on either side. So they think about 26, 1926 to about 1934. So basically, how they tested this was by looking at her teeth. And in 1944 is when atomic testing began. Basically, this emitted large amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. So people born after 1944 or who were young in 1944 and still had their teeth developing would have more of those carbon isotopes in their teeth. So the fact that they were not present in her teeth shows that her teeth were fully formed before this testing took place. So she was actually probably more towards her 40s as opposed to the early 30s that they originally thought. People say, well, why would she sign her name as 28 then? Why would she use seven different passports? My mother, our editor, God bless the woman, will still claim to you that she is between about 29 and 39 years old. And you should note that I myself am 28. So this woman's age that she gives you is bullshit. Now, to be fair, she has anniversaries. Carbon-14 dating on the dentin in her teeth, which is an inner part of the teeth, corroborated um, this higher age range that they gave her. They also did some isotope testing where they looked at the oxygen and strontium isotopes in her teeth. And basically, by looking at these different isotopes, you can get a general idea of the region that somebody was living in or was born in. And so her teeth that would have been developing when she was very young, and like the first adult teeth you would get, showed with these isotopes that she was likely born around Nuremberg, Germany. But then the teeth that she got as she was getting older showed that she probably moved towards the border of Germany and France. Um, So her probably her wisdom teeth or whatever teeth would be developing last in an adolescent teenager. They also think this is confirmed by some of the way she writes and puts things. But again, handwriting analysis is kind of sketchy, but they thought that it was confirmed with other things. Well, additionally, um, the way that she wrote things, it might not be quite so much her handwriting. Um Well, I mean, it is possible, but when you're writing, there's what they call um, copybooks. You learn a certain style of writing, and different areas use different copybook styles. So, like, the way that you write your K's, Rachel, you have it with the little loop. I don't, my lowercase K is basically a very small uppercase K. That's part of copybook style. Yeah, because I learned out of a certain copy book, and I think they switched before you were taught. Oh, no, I learned the same one. I just didn't like it, so I didn't do it. Okay, well. Um, <laughs> but there's also the idea of maybe the word choice and the order of words, um, because living in Germany for the first part of her life, she probably learned German as her first language, 
versus being, you know, German is a Germanic language, you do things in a certain order. Adjectives, before nouns, all that. French is a Romance language. If she moved towards the French border and learned French, it's possible that some of her first Germanic language came out in her writing. I don't know if they had that much of her writing, but it also might be if anybody remembered anything they she said to them, like in a in English or in Flemish. Um, sometimes, like you know, people who speak English as their second language, they'll put in quirks from their first. Yeah, well, like might in have had French, an idea with that too. as I mean, English is my only fluent language, other than bullshit, and. As a Germanic language, in English, like I said, you put the adjective before the noun. In French, you only do that when you're describing bags. Bigness, age, goodness, size. Yes, bigness. That's how you remember it. So I mess it up sometimes when I'm speaking French. So it's possible that she would too, having that Germanic uh, language as her first. I mean, you think about, like, when I'm speaking Spanish, I have to actively think to say something and then put the adjectives afterwards, because well, in Rachel, my brain... Well, Rachel, it's pronounced burrito grande. <laughs> That's about as far as uh, <laughs> high school Spanish took you. Hey, I can speak enough Spanish to understand when the waiter at the Mexican restaurant is talking about me, and I was able to tell when... Mexican truck drivers at the truck stop I worked at called me a bitch because I knew what you were talking about. Rachel, I know that much Spanish too. But anyway, her dental work, um, those gold fillings in her teeth and caps, I believe, um, had been done in Asia or Central and Eastern Europe. It seems like to me, Central and Eastern Europe is probably more likely by the way her travels took her. Well, remember, one of her passports came from Slovenia. This is true. So these clues really just helped give us a fuller picture of this woman and what she might have done in her life. Originally, when they thought she might have moved uh, towards the border with France, they thought, you know, Nuremberg was a big area of Nazi occupation. Maybe she moved when the war got going. But if she was born in 1930, she would have moved a little earlier. So maybe her parents got wind of rumblings and moved quicker. Something like that. A DNA sample was also taken. Basically, they just, like, a couple years ago, they were cleaning out the crime lab and found all this stuff, which shows why you clean closets, apparently. Um, So the DNA Doe Project is helping out to try to get good DNA from this and to maybe do the genealogy to uh, trace her relatives. So possibly more leads came from a recent podcast called Death in Ice Valley. And this was a BBC podcast um, that worked with Norwegian Broadcasting and did a deep dive into the Estelle woman's case. And they created an online community that examined documents and photographs to crowdsource evidence. It's believed that they have identified a spoon found in her luggage through the power of this crowdsourcing. And any item identified brings them closer to this mysterious woman's identity. This, however, raises the question, why would you have a spoon in your luggage? I really don't know. I saw this in, like, one location, and they say that, you know, I think they gave you the main things in her luggage. But it sounds like that what they're using is they have photographs and stuff, and if you can identify, say, maybe you had grandparents in the area at the time and you recognize the tag on one of her wigs as one like your grandmother had. 
it's that idea of trying to put this these pieces of information out there in front of the broadest audience possible because they, you know, at the time you could only print stuff in newspapers and that had limited run. But now if people can, you know, put it out on the internet, people have been able to identify curtains from cold cases or identify, you know, oh, I know that shirt. They would have bought it at JCPenney in the 90s. You know, stuff like that. So it just gives a little, it may not bring her identity, but it gives the each of these little pieces give, gets us a little bit closer to knowing who this might be. Yeah, so that's about all we have right now. Um, hopefully, as genealogical databases grow, there will be a break in this case. Uh, fingers crossed, since it does seem like they have some pretty decent DNA samples that they could be using. I really hope because this, I am kind of invested in this case because this is what I'm actually convinced might be a spy. Like with the Summerton man, I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe this one. I'm like, I don't see what else it could be. I could see criminal. Some kind of international criminal, which I guess works with spy because, I mean, what's on the other side of like James Bond, right? It's the Spectre, the overarching criminal organization. Well, not to mention that in most countries, espionage is illegal unless you're doing it for that country, so. Like piracy. Um, and no, I didn't entirely get way too into this case because Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold and I are watching all the James Bond movies we can, so I might have. This is really cool. So yeah, so my two theories are spy or international criminal. Which is another word for spy. I mean, not just like that, but somebody who maybe was trying to get the intelligence not because they had loyalty to the Soviets, but because they knew the Soviets would pay. I would assume she was a spy for the Soviets because of the areas she was spying in. They were all either western bloc countries or they were neutral countries like the only neutral country she was in was switzerland that makes sense um so i don't know what do you think though for murder or suicide i i mean it's very possible that they it's such a spy movie trope to have the cyanide pill but people did well not just that but as somebody who had those resources I, she took what fifty to sixty pills. Fifty I don't to seventy. Think, yeah, I don't think she'd go that overboard. I'm pretty sure that um, she was killed. I would think that she would be killed, but I don't know how you would force somebody to take that many sleeping pills, unless by some ungodly reason they burned her first, somehow. Like if, you know, something happened where they flared, like, you know, she got burnt with something and that would have clearly incapacitated her, right? I mean, I would think so, but who knows? Adrenaline's a funky thing. It is. So I don't know. I could see her, maybe she was trying to defect. Maybe she was panicking. I mean, people do some really strange things when they're at the end of their rope. Like... You know, it's possible that she didn't know how much would kill her and she didn't want to um, have it go wrong. And she tried to set it where it would burn her body after she died and something went wrong where it flared up at her and she got burnt, you know? That's possible. So if any of our listeners have any thoughts on the occupation or identity of the Estelle woman, 
Or uh, any thoughts on how Daniel Craig is the best James Bond? Sorry. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to touch that. Or if you have any thoughts on, was it suicide? Was it murder? Or if you want to tell me how you're deeply disturbed at how I described refrigerating the hands of the deceased, you can email us at yoursinmurderpod at gmail.com. We're also on the Facebook and the Twitter as Yours in Murder. We have a nifty website, yoursinmurder.net, where I eventually put up our sources a little bit behind. Takes a while for certain people to send them to me. So, um, also on our nifty website, there is a page where you can donate money if you feel like supporting our Patreon or our PayPal. It is always appreciated. And if you can't support us financially, we get it. We're broke too. But if you want to help us out without spending your hard-earned cash, you can always like us on Facebook, rate us and review us on your favorite podcatcher, unless you're that guy that told us how racist we were because we acknowledged <laughs> we acknowledged that there were um, historical disparities between races. Anyway, you can like us on Facebook, you can rate us and review us on your favorite podcatcher, or, oh, you can normally just share the podcast with a friend. I forgot what I always say here. Make sure it's a friend who will not actually disown you for Rebecca talking about refrigerating hands. Yeah, if they'll disown you for me talking about that, are they really your friend? I don't know. We'll discuss that on our next episode, but probably not. So thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we are yours in murder. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.